first service. What a great time of worship that was. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30. <clears throat> Just hold your spot there. Isaiah, chapter 30 is where we're going to be spending some time. We're going to look at a number of different passages today, but we're ultimately going to make our way to Isaiah, spending a little bit of time there, and then also later in the book of Lamentations. But uh, let me take a moment to pray this morning before we look at the message for today. Lord, thank you for <clears throat> this morning and this opportunity, God, to to worship you collectively. Lord, these are interesting days. Lord, where our church is sort of in two locations, God, here in this room and then also online. And God, we pray that somehow in a way that <clears throat> only your spirit can accomplish that you would let us feel unity in the midst of these days, God. But Lord, today as we look into your word, we also pray that you'd bring us to life and Lord, help us to to see the necessity of applying what you tell us and teach us in scripture. And God, that you would move in a unique way today. God, that you would bring us to a place to where we see the big picture. God, we see our part in that big picture and where we are in right relationship with you. And so thank you for what you'll do today. <clears throat> it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> our nation is in a mess. It probably didn't take just the events of this past week or these past few months to help us to see that, but I think it has driven the final stake in the ground, right, to see that our nation is in a mess. Our nation is in a mess for a variety of reasons, not just for one. We didn't come here slowly. We came here over a period of time. <clears throat> we didn't rush to this place of being in a mess simply because of one person's decision or because of one party or because of any one specific event, it was a slow fade to the point to where we find ourselves in the midst of the mess that we're in today. And the reasons are many. It seems like we find ourselves in a place in our nation where we are marked by disunity and by factions and by division. And it seems like we've embraced a posture. And I'm not talking about the 320 million unseen it all trickles down to us to some degree at least but it seems as though we have embraced a posture of <clears throat> divisiveness and of disunity and of blaming everyone else except ourselves and it seems as though there is a resistance against owning our own part of the mess and our own part of the contribution into the mess in which we find ourselves as a nation it's always somebody else's fault it's another party's fault it's another group's fault it's someone else who is to blame ultimately rather than ourselves and the result of that is the divisiveness and the disunity and the factions which we currently experience in our nation's culture we're in a mess for a variety of reasons not just because of the divisions and the factions but not also because of the lack of objectivity that we face where we blame everyone else except ourselves and our own contributions. But we're also in a mess because of spiritual ambiguity, right? A, 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 a failure to embrace the simple fact that there are certain truths in life that are not subjective in nature. They are objective, it's this spiritual ambiguity. It's just almost like a spiritual rate wasteland. I was, I, was, um, I was able to see this, as maybe many of you were this past week or so, I believe it was, when one of our congressional leaders 
opened up a new session of Congress with a prayer and uh, praying for those congressional leaders. This particular congressman uh, is also a minister, right? And, uh, and at the conclusion of his prayer, you probably saw this in your news feed or on social media, he ended his prayer by praying amen and a woman. And I honestly, I really didn't quite, I mean, a part of me wanted to laugh at it, but I felt guilty. A, a part of me was just appalled by the spiritual ambiguity, right, to where there are certain things that are not open for debate, and even the word amen itself has nothing to do with gender. But that wasn't the biggest issue. It's what was prayed by this minister slash congressional leader immediately before he ever said amen and a woman. It was when he prayed to the monotheistic God, which God is. Mono, one, theistic, he is one God. He's not a plurality of gods. But then as the congressman prayed and the minister prayed, I want to get this right, he also prayed to God as the monotheistic God and, quote, as Brahma and a God known by many names, by many different faiths by many names. Brahma is a Hindu god. The Hindu religion worships a plethora of false gods, multiplicity of false gods. Brahma is seen as the creator god. Interesting how a prayer opening a session of Congress by a minister... (laughs) contradicts itself in referring to God as monotheistic, but then also as one who is many. Our nation is in a mess because of spiritual ambiguity. Isaiah chapter 43, you're in chapter 30, hold your spot there. Take a look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 43, how the Lord describes himself. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. It doesn't seem as though God is in the business of being referred to by a multiplicity of names. He is one God. And as he revealed himself in Deuteronomy, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are in a mess because of our divisions and our factions and our disunity. We are in a mess because of our lack of objectivity. It's always someone else's contribution, not our own, that has contributed to the mess. We are in a mess as a nation because of our spiritual ambiguity. We are in a mess in our nation because we have tried to redefine what God has already declared to be absolute. Right? We cannot redefine what God has declared absolute, but we as a nation have attempted to redefine what God has declared as absolute in a variety of ways, one in the arena of sexuality. 
right, where, where we, we embrace this mentality that though God has said in absolute terms that, that sexuality is only to be experienced in the context of biblical marriage, what we have done as a culture, what we have done as a nation, and to some degree, even as churches, is that we've tried to move the boundaries of what God has already defined in objective, not subjective terms. To where God has said that sex is to be experienced only in the context of biblical marriage, what our culture has said is that no, 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 it is up to you. And, and, and as long as love is present or as long as you are giving consent, then you can experience this on your own terms and in your own way. We've attempted to redefine what God has already declared as absolute in the arena of sexuality. We've tried to redefine what God has already declared absolute in the arena of gender. And it doesn't discount the struggles that people may face as it relates to those gender issues. There needs to be compassion, and there needs to be help, and there needs to be the gospel that is offered, right? But at the end of the day, we don't have the latitude, and we do not have the authority to attempt to redefine what God has already declared in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. When it says he created them, and he created them male and female. And I don't say this in any comical fashion, but it doesn't matter how we identify. At the end of the day, God already in absolute terms has established creation on his terms, and we cannot redefine that. And we're partly in a mess because of our attempts to redefine what God has already declared as absolute. That applies in the arena of marriage. For marriage is not open for debate. Marriage is not on the voting block to determine who can get married and whether it can be same-sex or not. I mean, that, that's not. We can try to redefine that as a culture if we desire. We could take a shot at it and get a lot of support on social media or, or even in the voting process that takes place in our own nation right down to the local level. However, we cannot redefine what God has already established as marriage. He painted the picture the first human institution in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We can't redefine that. And partly, our nation is in the mess that it's in because we've attempted to redefine what God has already described as absolute. Discrimination, whether it be on racial issues, whether it be on social status, whether it be based on where you were raised or where you lived or what your family heritage is or what nation you're from or what you believe or the color of your skin, discrimination that runs across the board in our country, right, contributes to the mess in which we find ourselves. Abortion. If the numbers from 2018 are accurate, this 30-minute message will also result in the deaths of 30-plus children who will be aborted in the womb. And it is a political firestorm, but it is spiritual long before it's political because in Psalm 139, the psalmist says that even in the womb, God saw their unformed body. And there are countless biblical passages that paint the picture that life is in the womb, life in the womb is life. 
it's become a political issue but it's a spiritual issue first anytime i mention the issue of abortion i want to be quick to understand that probably in any audience that i speak to when i mention this topic there is someone who is there who has silently dealt with the after effects of making that choice themselves and i want to be quick to remind you that our god is a god of grace and our god is a god of healing and our god is a god of second chances and third chances and our god is a god of restoration and he meets us where we are when we bring our own version of our own mess and thankfully listen god is a god who meets us there and he forgives us and that is already paid for but still it's a reflection of the mess in which we find ourselves collectively as 62 million have died in the womb since 1973 bringing it down to a personal level we have become gods unto ourselves right even inside the walls of the church where we as believers at times want to pick and choose what we emphasize and what we obey from God's word we want to pick out the parts that are especially appealing to us and we want to discard the parts that require something of us. And it's almost as though we are reflective at times of what the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges says. Look at what it says here in Judges, the indictment on the people of Israel. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we are, right? We're there as a nation. We're there collectively. And sadly, oftentimes, even within the walls of the body of Christ, we're at the very same place where we have become gods unto ourselves, where we decide what we want to obey and what we're ultimately going to discard. And it seems as though we've lost sight of the picture and the definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the first place. You know, there's a term that I came across. I think it's been in existence for a number of years. I'd never heard it before because I don't follow politics a whole lot, to be quite honest. It's hard not to during this season of life from, uh, from about October until now for us here in this state at least up until just this past week. It's hard not to be exposed to it, but I don't follow it a whole lot. But recently I learned this term, rhino, right? And it's for those who are Republicans in name only. I don't know, maybe there's a dino in existence, those who are Democrats in name only, have no idea. But what I do know is that one of the problems within the walls of the body of Christ is that there are a lot of Christians in name only as well, who we have forgotten the picture that Jesus paints, the definition of what it means to follow him in the first place. It has nothing to do with a name on a membership role has nothing to do with whether our grandma or grandpa were preachers or part of a local church has everything to do with what jesus described look at what he says here in luke chapter 9 specifically he says he was saying to them all if anyone wishes to come after me he must one deny himself two take up his cross daily which is a picture of death to ourselves and three follow me that's the picture of what it means to be a follower of jesus and one of the reasons that our nation is in the mess that we are in is partly because we have become gods to some degree unto ourselves, where we have crafted our own version of what Christianity looks like. We've crafted our own version of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that's the version that we've chosen to embrace because it's more comfortable, whereas our own Savior, who carries the very name of our faith to begin with, has said that a follower of his looks a lot like like one who's denied himself died to self and then is in position to follow him and we've lost sight of that we've lost sight of it our nation is in a mess 
We're in a mess for a variety of reasons. The reason we're in the mess we're in is not because of any partisan reason, however. It's not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. And the remedy for a nation's mess has always been one. One remedy. You know, it's been said that the pulpit is no place for politics. And I hope that you hear that everything that I've said so far today really has little to do with politics. It has much more to do with the heart that influences the fabric of our culture. However, I would disagree with the comment that the pulpit is no place for politics. If you've been here long enough, you know that I rarely step into the political arena, and I have um, my own personal reasons for doing that, largely because politics never saved anything. A relationship with Jesus has saved millions. So you don't need me to stand up in October or early November and tell you how to vote. It says I preach this book week in and week out. And as you spend time in this same book day in and day out, and as you put yourself in position in me as well under the leadership and the teaching of other people who teach and preach this book, we should not need anyone to tell us how to vote. This will tell us how to vote ourselves, right? And so I've never felt compelled to try to stand up and to try to get political for two months every four years here in our country. I've never had a desire to do that. I've never felt compelled to do that. However, we do need to understand that the Bible boldly and loudly speaks into and is influenced by specific political climates. When the nation of Israel was released or rather when they were placed in captivity in Egypt, they were placed in captivity, setting the stage for the greatest miracle of the Old Testament perhaps, the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. The reason they were in captivity was largely because of political reasons. Pharaoh, leader of Egypt, put them there, enslaved them. Whenever you move forward from there, you get to a book in the scripture called Judges. Judges, for goodness sake. I mean, you can't help but miss the political connotation that is uh, running throughout that entire book. And the context of the book of Judges are leaders in Israel who were both military and civic leaders who had political influence as well as spiritual oversight to some small degree. The priests did largely. But judges carry certain political connotations. You get to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and it's in those four books that we find that the kings of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon, were political leaders. And those four books detail for us how they led militarily, how they led spiritually, how they led politically. The prophets would come along when God's people would begin to wander, both Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And the prophets would speak. Isaiah, we're about to get to him in just a moment. Isaiah perhaps was most influential within the midst of a political climate. He had the ear of kings. He had the ear of political leaders. Isaiah ran in those circles. And the prophets would speak to a political culture to a specific political climate railing against the sins of Israel and Judah railing against how they would politically align with other nations specifically Egypt rather than trusting in God you get to Jesus's birth he was born in Bethlehem partly influenced by a political decision made by a political leader named Herod who issued a decree for a census 
Jesus would be crucified 30, 33 years later. And he would be crucified in the context of a political climate where it wasn't just the Jews, but the Romans who were occupiers of the land of Israel had a little something to do with his crucifixion and carrying it out. And then when he would resurrect and go back to the Father and the early church would begin to be birthed and take root and the gospel would spread, Peter and Paul and those early church leaders, many of them would be persecuted and killed for their faith for political reasons. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that, that the Bible is a book that is not political in nature. However, it sets in the midst of a setting that carries so many political connotations. And it's in that context, I mean, that God speaks remedy. Remember, our nation is in a mess, and the reasons that our nation is in a mess are many. They're not partisan, but the remedy is only one. And that's what we get to in Isaiah chapter 30. You could take Isaiah's words written roughly 2,700 years ago and you could overlay them perfectly in our current culture, in our country, and they would speak as loudly and as truthfully today as they did 2,700 years ago to the people of Israel. So let's jump in here and I hope you'll read along with me. Isaiah chapter 30, let's begin in verse 9. And Isaiah is quoting God here through much of this passage of Scripture. Isaiah 30, verse 9, he says, <clears throat> quoting God, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. Listen to this. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words prophecy illusions you know what was happening then was that the people didn't want to hear the truth from god they wanted their prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear and i'll just say man there are numerous churches that dot the landscape of this country in which we live and numerous people who pastor and who proclaim on a weekly basis, both nationally, internationally, on television, and as well as in actual pulpits, who will be glad to tell the assemblies of those who hear them only what they want to hear rather than sometimes the hard truths of God. This is where Israel was. Told the prophets, don't tell us what God wants us to hear. Just tell us pleasant words. Verse 11, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you've rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall like a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a shirt will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to even scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. <clears throat> in quietness and trust is your strength but you were not willing man what <clears throat> sobering words the picture that Isaiah paints is a picture of the signs of collapse 
Imagine you roll into your garage sometime later today and you got the old family Schwinn back there. You hadn't ridden it in about 10 years. Those tires look great. They're still round, right? Still got some tread on them. Man, you rode it like a champ back 10 years ago. But that Schwinn hadn't seen neither the lighter day nor pavement in the last 10 years. And you decide, you know what, it's January. We're halfway through this, getting up to halfway through this month here soon. I think I'm going to go for a bike ride, and you take that Schwinn out there, and you ride it out your neighborhood, and you go to the highest hill. We call those bridges around here, don't we? And you crest the top of that, let's just call it a mountain because it sounds better. You crest the top of that mountain, and you're rolling down the other side, and man, you are gaining speed, and you're eight years old all over again. You're hitting 22, 24, 25 miles an hour. What you didn't realize was because of the condition of that particular tire, there was a bulge on the outside of that tire. And when you exert it under those specific conditions, there is going to be an inevitable experience where that tire is going to blow and that fall is going to be painful. And what Isaiah is saying here, he says to the people of Judah, because you've rejected God and understood there is every time we reject him, we always replace him. He says this iniquity is going to be like a breach about to fall, like a bulge in a high wall, and the collapse is going to be suddenly and with and in an instant. And he's not talking about bicycles. He's talking about the direction of a culture who has stiff-armed God, treated him like a task to be accomplished, has pushed him to the curb, and then replaced them with themselves as a God unto themselves. And he says it's not going to end well. But in the midst of that, he says there is one remedy. <laughs> Look at what it says again in verse 15. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. This is us. You know, Israel would be disciplined for their sin. They would be taken off into exile. 721 B.C. By the Assyrians. Isaiah's words would fall on deaf ears and discipline would come. A little over 100 years later, Judah to the south, God's people, would follow suit. God would send them prophets, Jeremiah being one of them. Jeremiah would minister for 40 years to the people of Judah, proclaiming the truth of God, hard words for them to hear when you want to be your own God. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, partly because he proclaimed a message, imagine four decades proclaiming a message, and no one listened. Jeremiah would beckon for them to come back to God. He would beckon them to trust him. He would beckon them to return with a whole heart in repentance and in faith and in wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And yet the people would not listen. They were caught up in their idolatry. They were caught up in their rebellion. They were caught up in their sin. They were caught up in being their own gods. 
And as a result, what Jeremiah warned and what Jeremiah prophesied would ultimately come to pass, and it would be the darkest day they would experience. Taken off into exile, three separate deportations, 586 B.C. being the biggest, drug out of their homeland, the promised land, and taken off by the Babylonians, the world power of their day, and placed into slavery as exiles. So bad that those who played the harp would hang their harps on the willow trees. Why? Because they had no song to sing. It was the worst. City was destroyed. Nehemiah later would come back and find a city with the gates removed, the whole city seemingly burned, decimated. Solomon's temple, 400 years old at that time, would be destroyed. Jeremiah would more than likely be the author of another book, a book called Lamentations. Lamentations, it would be a book that would be five chapters long, five Hebrew poems, one for each chapter. A lament to the Jews of the Old Testament era was a way that they would express their grief and their sorrow. A, a lament was a way to cry out to God and to process the intense emotions and the confusion that would come during such tragedy as what they had experienced. And in the book of Lamentations, more than likely, it's Jeremiah who's writing it. And Jeremiah writes in chapter 1, and he paints this picture of Jerusalem as Jerusalem being the daughter of Zion who is grieving the loss of a loved one. Just get a little idea for how bad things were as Jeremiah writes this lament in this book we call Lamentations. In Lamentations chapter 1, look at the first two verses. I believe we've got them here on the overhead it says how lonely sits the people that was full of the city that was full of people she has become like a widow that's how he describes jerusalem as it was emptied by those who were taken off into captivity she has become like a widow who was once great among the nations she who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She's none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Look down a little further to verse 8 in chapter 1. He says, Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she's become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Go down to verse 18 in chapter 1. Jeremiah writes, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. He moves into chapter 2, and he deals with the specific sin of the people of Judah and how God has to ultimately discipline them for their sin. Look down in chapter 2, verse 11. Jeremiah is speaking here. It's his own lament. He says, My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, how shall I admonish you, Jeremiah says? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? 
such dark days. Chapter 3, the people of God are portrayed as a lonely man speaking from a heart of suffering. Look at what he says, chapter 3, verse 17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. These were the darkest days. Their country was in a mess. Their country was in a mess for a variety of reasons. Their country was in a mess not primarily for political reasons, but their remedy would only be one. Just like Isaiah said before, repentance and trust in the Lord. You know, it's against this backdrop of darkness in this book of lament, lamentations, that Jeremiah continues when all hope seems to be lost. Look at what Jeremiah reminds them of in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. (laughs) You know what stood out to Jeremiah even brighter than the destruction, even brighter than the exile and the discipline? What shined far brighter was the hope that came through a relationship with God. And it was his hope in who God is, that he is a God of loving kindness. And the picture there was not a contractual love. It was not a contractual love that God says to his people, you know what, I'll love you if you keep jumping through these hoops and I'll keep loving you. That, that's a contractual love. That's not how God is described here. When it mentions his loving kindness, it mentions that that, that that word reflects not a contractual love. It mentions a, and it reflects a covenant kind of a love. We have enough contractual love in our, in our lives, don't we, right? In marriage, when one person quits doing all the right things, the other person says, you know what, I'm out of here. That's a contractual love. In our friendships, if someone crosses the line and does something to hurt us, we just write them off, we cancel them. Our whole culture is canceling everybody. I'll probably get canceled today, I guess, by maybe some. Who knows? You'll get canceled, I'm sure, over something you'll say or do. Why? Because our relationships, more often than not in this world, are built on contracts, not on covenant. And when we, got, when we come to God, we have to realign this, that, that God is not a contractual God. He is a covenant God. And what he says to Judah here, who had sinned so greatly that in order to bring them home again, it would require the loss of their own city and them taken off into captivity. Do we see how bad this was? Require that God would have to discipline them at that level, and yet Jeremiah knew that he could say with all authority and all integrity and all truthfulness, he could say, but you, God, your loving kindnesses ultimately never fail. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies in the midst of darkness are are ultimately new every single morning. (laughs) And even there he had hope. Even there he had hope. 
you know, we close out what he had to say a little bit further in chapter 3. Look at what he says in verse 24. It says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So what are the takeaways? Let me give you three and I'll be done. Takeaway number one, sin and rejection of God or rejection of his truth always carries consequences. That's true for our nation. That's true for you as an individual. It's true for me as a follower of Christ. If we let sin go unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of, and we let it begin to run rampant in our lives, and we reject God as a result and reject His truth, there are going to be consequences. That's the way the world rolls. The second takeaway is that the remedy for this is always repentance and trust in Christ. If you've never given your life to Jesus, and you feel like your life might be part of that mess today, and the remedy is not you making better commitments next January 1st that you may have already broken. It's not finding that right person. It's not reading that right book. Your remedy for a life that is broken and in a mess is always going to be a relationship with God through Jesus that only comes when you repent and lay down your sin and invite him who's already died on the cross and risen to pay for it to come in and to forgive you and to take over. Our remedy as a person, our remedy as families, our remedy as a nation is always repentance and trust in Christ. And the final takeaway is that God's love for his own is ultimately a covenant love. And even though he sometimes has to discipline, he never, ever abandons. (laughs) Man, that is really, really good news. Our nation's in a mess, right? It's not because of what the Republicans did. It's not because of what the Democrats did. Both sides of that aisle have added equally to the mess. Part of the mess in which we find ourselves comes back to us. The reasons are many. But the remedy is the same as what it was back in Isaiah's day and in Jeremiah's day. It's going to be when we own our part of the mess and we confess it, and we repent, and we quit rejecting God and replacing God, and instead we trust Him and follow Him with every single part of who we are. I voted twice in two months, as many of you did in these recent days. My vote carried a level of influence of one 320 millionth. That's how much influence my votes had, one not one-tenth, not one one-hundredth, one three-hundred-twenty millionth. Not a lot of influence. But you know what? If I just simply decide in my heart that I'm going to live my life in humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and I do the things He's called me to do, to be salt and to be light and to be a megaphone of the gospel and to live in a way that puts Jesus on display and doesn't collect, doesn't conflict with the truth of his word. If I just do the best that I can, and when I fall short, own it and confess it and turn from it and keep moving on in his grace, then I'll have a whole lot more influence than one 320 millionth. And you know what? You will too. And when we as believers embrace that kind of mentality, we stand for what is right, do what is right, and we walk humbly with our God, 
and we absorb the cost that comes with that and we do it with a humble tear in our, wide, in our eye the way Jesus had when he looked over the city of Jerusalem in his day that's where influence comes but it doesn't come until we first repent of our part of the mess and trust him all over again let's pray Lord, your word's not a political book. But God, we'd be blind to miss that much of it was written in a political climate. And Lord, many times in those various political climates, whether it was the prophets who were speaking or Jesus who was speaking or the early church who was speaking, Lord, many times they paid for what they said. And Lord, in the midst of a variety of spiritual cultures over the 1,500-year span of time in which the Bible was written, the answer was always the same. It wasn't in doing better. It was in repentance and in faith in Jesus. God, that starts with us as followers of Christ. And Lord, we can't expect to dabble in the things of God and to have a deep walk with you. Lord, we have to be all in. We have to be fully immersed as believers. Lord, completely and totally, wholeheartedly sold out to the person of Christ. And God, every one of us in this room, every one of us watching online has room to grow in that area. And Lord, I think maybe for us, the decision that we need to make today is have I contributed to the mess that we're in or am I part of the remedy? Because though Jesus, you are always the only remedy the way that you chose to introduce yourself to a fallen world since you came and died and rose and returned to the Father is through your people. Lord, who live as salt and light in this world, who stand for truth and who are willing to take the cost that comes when we live in seemingly backwards fashion in a fallen world. And so God, help us to be right with you internally. Lord, give us boldness to live out our faith externally. And God, in the midst of all of that, we pray that our lives will be lives of influence. And Lord, though we may not shape a nation or a world, God, we can shape our part of that nation and our part of that world where you planted us. So God, help us to choose humility. Lord, help us to be part of the solution, knowing that that solution is spiritual in nature and that what you call us to is still the same to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow you. And Lord, we know that wrapped up in the word follow is also the word lead, and that you'll take us where we need to go to influence this world in which we live. For those who don't know you today, God, may they be quick to give their lives to Jesus. Lord, there is no greater plan, there is no greater deal in existence that will give them fulfillment and rightness before God than to surrender their lives to Jesus. And for those of us who've done that, God, use us, we pray. And we thank you that no matter how dark the days may become, that your faithfulness is great, that your loving kindnesses never cease, and each new day brings another revelation of your mercies. And God, for that, we're grateful. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.